The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guest illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. Hello, and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, A Conversation of Hope. Today, we're talking about the Federal Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, better known as Vaccine Court, having very recently awarded millions of dollars to two children with autism for pain and suffering and lifelong care of their injuries, which together could cost tens of millions of dollars. I'm your host, Terry Aranga, with my illustrious guests here on February 5th, author and award-winning scientist Dr. Andrew Wakefield and award-winning New York Times best-selling author and acclaimed journalist David Kirby. Welcome, gentlemen. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, David. Hey. Well, David, you wrote a good article in the Huffington Post about this, and you talk about Ryan Mojave, whose parents said he suffered a vaccine table injury, encephalopathy, as a result of the MMR vaccine. David, how can there be what's called table injuries, which are known, uh, they're known compensable adverse reactions to immunizations if vaccines are safe. And in fact, uh, some allege that a child could take thousands of vaccines safely. How can there be these table uh, injuries if vaccines are safe? Well, uh, I think that's the key to the whole discussion that we're probably going to have here today is that obviously vaccines are not 100% safe for 100% of the children, 100% of the time. I think that's just indisputable. I think the dispute comes in, how often are these injuries occurring? Uh, do they get reported enough? And, and why aren't they being studied more than, than they are? Um, I think that the real key to increasing autism is a huge combination of environmental and genetic factors that have created this perfect storm whereby there are all sorts of different routes to what we call the symptoms of autism and that the world, as it gets more polluted, and as that pollution disrupts things like endocrine production and mitochondrial health, that children are being born less able to withstand environmental stressors in the postnatal period, in the neonatal period, which could also include immunization. So I think that there's always been a very, very small percentage of children who, genetically speaking or for whatever reason, um, are susceptible to all kinds of environmental injuries, including, we know, vaccination, because that's why we have the vaccine injury program. My suspicion is that the number and percentage of children who are susceptible to those injuries is growing and has grown over the last 10 or 20 years. You know, and David, 
Um, I'm glad to hear you saying some of these things, and it reminds me of the uh, study that Boyd Haley talked about where uh, the, uh, the female mice were more susceptible to damage. I'm sorry, excuse me, I misspoke. The male mice were more susceptible to damage from samarasol, that mercury-containing preservative, than were the female mice. But when you get to a certain point, when you throw enough poison at anyone, aren't they going to get um, affected uh, or the, to the greatest extent of the population? You know, we're looking at uh, 43 to 54% of kids uh, in an academic pediatrics report who had some sort of chronic illness that was assessed in that report, we're looking at one in six children with some sort of a developmental or behavioral uh, condition, and that was from a CDC autism alarm in 2004, and that's been reiterated recently. When you throw enough poison at anyone, aren't they going to be affected? Well, sure, and the, the opposite is true as well. If you throw a tiny bit of poison at everyone, most people won't be affected, but some people will and some people will be affected severely. The dose makes the poison is a very 19th century, 20th century adage. Yes, of course the dose is important, but it's also important how large is the person being exposed, what is the gender of the person being exposed, what is the past health history, and I think extremely important, what is the genetic makeup of that person? How healthy are their mitochondria? How healthy is their immune system? What history of autoimmunity is there? Um, how prone are they to neuroinflammation? Uh, susceptibility comes in all shapes and sizes. And again, I believe that the risk or the susceptibility for postnatal injury from a variety of environmental exposures has increased. And, and then I wonder too, David, if um, the history of vaccines over the decades has even created some or uh, all of that genetic predisposition that we hear about. Um, I'm glad to hear you talking about environmental insults and pollutants and certainly uh, vaccines containing neurotoxins would to me be considered uh, an, an insult. And some have even called vaccines unavoidably unsafe. You were talking about things needing to be more studied and I would also argue that things need to be more disclosed. We know from something we'll be talking about later, uh, the 1322 project, which was unanswered, titled Unanswered Questions, etc., in a peer-reviewed law journal, um, that the government knew for years that cases were being compensated, and those children just happened to also have uh, autism. So let's go on, and we'll talk about Ryan Mahabi's parents. They said that as a result of vaccinations, Ryan suffered neuroimmunologically mediated dysfunctions in the form of asthma and autism. So, Dr. Wakefield, those are a lot of concepts jumbled together, neuroimmunologically mediated dysfunctions. What does it mean to have a neuroimmune event? How would that relate to asthma and autism? And is encephalopathy also a neuroimmune event? Yes, thank you very much, Terry. I think, I mean, in the context of, of um, Ryan's injury, I think neuroimmune event refers to the fact that the vaccine triggered the immune system to in some way attack or damage the central nervous system of this child to cause an immune-mediated attack against the brain tissue and uh, to result in autism as a consequence and his other deficits. Now, in addition to producing activation of the immune system that can produce damage to the brain, of course, it can do similar things in uh, other tissues, and asthma may well be a consequence in this child as well. 
And I think this is entirely reasonable. If you look at measles as just one example, measles can uh, cause brain damage in a number of different ways. But one of the ways in which it can do it, it's well recognized, is it can trigger the immune system to produce what is called a, uh, a post-measles encephalomyelitis, inflammation, particularly of the white matter, the uh, lining of the nerves in the brain, the insulation, if you like. And I think I just to pick up on something that you both referred to, and that is the complexity of causation. And this is one of the things that has dogged this throughout, because um, the causes of diseases are not simple. They're the interaction of, of genetic predispositions with environmental factors. And of course, if you keep changing the environment in the context of immunizations by adding more and more and more immunizations in, accelerating the schedule and putting uh, known neurotoxins such as mercury and aluminum in, you are going to shift the landscape considerably and may well exacerbate the risk over time. I think the important point to make is the breaking point that you referred to, Terry, the point at which um, the poisoning becomes excessive is is reflected in the fact that the Environmental Protection Agency have shown a very sharp inflection in the incidence of autism, that is the number of newer cases uh, occurring per annum um, in children born right at the end of the late 80s, two, just two years, 88, 89. And that same observation is made through around the world, Japan, Denmark, the UK, and the US. And so in these seemingly genetically diverse populations, relatively diverse populations, you've got something, some common denominator happening at that point. And so that helps you narrow down the environmental factors that may well be the trigger, the tipping point, if you like, and they concurred, they occurred at the same time as there were major changes in the immunization program. So my feeling, having looked at this now for 18 years, is that immunizations are inevitably involved in this process, and the recent rulings in the vaccine court endorse that. That's a very good point, Dr. Wakefield. And before we uh, talk specifically about what happened to the children, Ryan and Emily, David, your article said that in vaccine court, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services acts as the defendant. But your article also said that taxpayers are now going to pay for therapy for these children. How do taxpayers pay for this, and whose money pays for the Department of Justice lawyers? Well, taxpayer maybe isn't the 100% accurate word. It is a tax, and it is paid by people, uh, but it's a, uh, I believe, 75-cent uh, surcharge and excise tax on every vaccine that's given in this country. So if you get a vaccine, you pay the tax, uh, and that tax is then sent to the compensation fund. As far as financing the attorneys for the Department of Justice, and they are very well financed. Um, I believe that comes out of DOJ budget, but if I'm not mistaken, during the Bush administration, George W. Bush, I think in his second term, uh, they added several million dollars more specifically for attorneys fighting vaccine cases in the VICP. Um, the fees for attorneys for the plaintiffs, for the families, that also comes out of the compensation fund from that 75 cent tax that we pay. All right, and when we say 75 cents per vaccine, we mean 75 cents per antigen. So if we're talking about the MMR vaccine, that's 75 plus 75 plus 75 cents. 
And I don't I'm know here. if that's <laughs> accurate, Terry. I, I, I don't know. I, I thought it was per immunization, per shot, but I could be mistaken. Um, and um, I'm hearing that there's like $3 billion in that fund. Uh, Something like that, yes. Yeah. Um, So why is it said that vaccine lawsuits would bankrupt pharmaceutical companies, especially since the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program was created to protect pharmaceutical companies? Well, because there is a vaccine injury compensation program and because thimerosal suits can no longer be filed or any vaccine case can be filed in state court, in civil court, federal court, uh, all vaccine injury cases have to go through the compensation program. So pharmaceutical companies are off the hook no matter what. And the reason that the fund isn't going broke is because even though it's supposed to be favorable to the families, uh, it's very hard to win compensation in vaccine court. Although I must say that the number of cases being paid out and the percentage of cases being paid out has increased exponentially in the last few years. Uh, it used to be just a tiny fraction of cases filed would win awards, and now it's much, much, much higher. Um, the reason for that, I believe, is because a number of, uh, they're mostly adult cases, uh, a number of flu vaccine injury cases, and of course there was an omnibus proceeding on the hepatitis B vaccine and demyelating disorders, including MS, uh, and ADEM, which we may get into, uh, it's an acute uh, demyelating disorder of the brain. Uh, and in several cases, people did win compensation for hepatitis B vaccine causing demyelating disorders. And just for uh, listeners who don't know what demyelinating disorders are, sure. just think <laughs> of the tissue being stripped off from around the cells in your brain, and your brain eating itself. Dr. Wakefield, is, is that a fair assessment? Yes, it's a, a, a damage to the sort of insulation of the nerves, the white matter, the fatty coating of the nerves that allows the nerve impulses to be propagated along the nerve um, uh, efficiently. And when that's damaged, the nerves simply don't work properly. So one more I think question. it's important to note that children with autism have presence of uh, autoantibodies to brain myelin, uh, they don't necessarily show damage to myelin, but we also know that myelin damage can be repaired. So that would signal that it's possible that there was some type of demyelating process going on uh, in the child at a younger age uh, that left that child open to an encephalopathy, a, a brain disease, brain damage, um, uh, just because there is the presence of these autoantibodies to myelin. David, that's a great point. Very good point there, Terry. I'll pick up on that just very briefly and to say that if you look at those cases that have been compensated where there has been a demonstrable encephalitis, that child has had a scan within the requisite period soon after the vaccine, and that is that scan that was done soon after showed evidence of myelin damage, and therefore there was irrefutable evidence of um, inflammation. Of course, most children with autism, the great majority, the vast majority, do not get a scan in the period soon after the immunization, even though the parents may go to the doctor and say, there's something very wrong with my child. And therefore, they, because, if you like, of that uh, questionable medical practice, these children are not getting picked up on scanning and they're therefore not eligible for compensation. Right. So even or the parents... Treatment. I'm sorry. 
because even ADEM can be treated fairly successfully with cortisone, uh, but you can't diagnose ADEM unless you do a scan, which, of course, is what happened in the, the Bailey Banks case. I don't want to get too far off track, but that was another case in vaccine court where the special master ruled that if not for the administration of the MMR ma- uh, vaccine, uh, this child would not have suffered this acute demyelation of the brain, and that brain damage, that encephalopathy, did lead to a uh, diagnosis of PDD-NOS. David, I'm so glad that you shared that with listeners. And on that great point, we're going to take a break here at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsor, Humpback Dairies of Miller, Missouri, providers of delicious, nutritious camel's milk, a whole food, and they can be reached at 417-848-7570. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tong has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. In the spirit of Have Couch Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Andrew Wakefield and David Kirby. And before the break, we had been talking with David about particulars about the vaccine court, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Department of Justice. And Dr. Wakefield, did any of that remind you at all of the situation in the United Kingdom with the government being the defendant? Am I remembering something from your book, Callous Disregard? Yeah, the situation, Terry, is very different in the U.S. and the U.K. In the U.S., of course, you have... Uh, the taxpayers, as you said, picking up the tab uh, through the government indemnifying the pharmaceutical industry. What an extraordinary situation where you could uh, you can produce something and suffer no consequence for um, the damage that occurs as a result of that. Imagine producing a car or a tire uh, where that would happen. Why would you bother to do safety studies adequately uh, when you don't have to pick up the tab for any damage? You wouldn't, and that's I'm afraid the situation that we find ourselves in. So a, a legacy of that act has been uh, an appalling uh, litany of, of errors on the part of the pharmaceutical industry. But in the UK, it was a different situation. The uh, manufacturer 
was liable, and when they introduced the MMR vaccine, there was a big move to give the lion's share of the, uh, the, of the MMR contract to the home team, uh, SmithKline-Beecham. Unfortunately, at the time, of course, they had a dangerous, a knowingly dangerous MMR vaccine, which was withdrawn in Canada in the same month that it was licensed in the UK. It just, they simply changed the name from Trivirix to Plusirix uh, to cover up the fact that that vaccine was producing an alarming and unacceptable level of meningitis in children. Uh, the reason the vaccine was introduced, was able to be introduced, it seems, is that the government did an under-the-table deal with SmithKline, which uh, indemnified them. It was not, therefore, as in the States, uh, through an act of Congress. Uh, it was something that the public were um, never aware of. And, in fact, David Salisbury, head of the Joint Committee on Immunization uh, Committees in the UK, has strenuously denied that such a contract existed. But there, in the minutes of his own uh, panel, the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunization, it says that, um, that SmithKline continued to sell the Urabi-containing MMR, the dangerous one, uh, without liability. I repeat, without liability. So a deal was done, very different from the more transparent situation in the United States. So not only unavoidably unsafe, they downright knew ahead of time it was unsafe. Well, David, they did. Been warned by a whistleblower from the government, an advisor who went to them from Canada saying, do not use this vaccine. They ignored his advice and uh, they went ahead and introduced it. And inevitably it produced an unacceptable level of, men of meningitis at 100 times the level um, that was measurable by what we call passive surveillance, just waiting for cases to be reported on an ad hoc basis. And it was withdrawn four years after its introduction very hastily. You know, I just got chills. It's, it's just chillingly horrid to think that governments would just knowingly and savagely rip apart the life and health and function and happiness of children and families. David, please tell us what happened to little Ryan as he was falling ill. Uh, he, uh, from what we can tell from what court papers have been published, we don't have all the documents uh, he had a pretty common trajectory from what I can hear. It's the same story that I've heard from hundreds, if not thousands, of parents. In his case, it was uh, the MMR vaccine and a couple other uh, vaccines at roughly 18 months of age. <clears throat> the family, um, they're immigrants from Iran, and they were planning a, a trip home over the Christmas holidays uh, with a stop in Paris. And... Um, he uh, had missed some vaccines, and they wanted to get him caught up before he left. So he went to the doctor, I think it was probably the day before they left. Uh, and that day, he started showing signs of some kind of trauma. I think he had a fever. Um, I think he might have had seizures. I'd have to go back and see the particulars of the case. Uh, but he wasn't well. And the next day, as they were in line at the airport, he started screaming, a uh, high-pitched scream, and then was crying throughout most of the flight. Uh, and, in fact, I believe the parents called the doctor and said, our kid is having problems, can we travel? And, and the, I think it was the nurse at the office said, no, it's okay, you can, you can take your kid on the trip. Uh, in Paris, he got sick, and by the time they got to Tehran, he was really sick, and the mother rushed him to the hospital, 
And two different doctors there diagnosed him with, uh, uh, I believe, encephalopathy uh, and, and fevers and seizures um, that they attributed to, to the recent immunizations. Now, when they got back, um, they took their child to the doctor and they, they actually got another MMR vaccine and according to the records in the case filed, did not at least at that time, mention any sort of neurological deficits or any problem that the child was having. And the government argued that it wasn't until a year later that the parents started reporting things like loss of speech, loss of eye contact, etc. I guess the parents have a different recollection. So when you read the court documents and when the government argues that there was no proof that the child suffered encephalopathy because he was able to fly to Europe, um, and there's no proof that the child had any autism symptoms returning from the trip because the record shows that didn't happen for a full year. Uh, when I read that, I thought, well, why did this case get not only compensated, but the government actually conceded? But if you look at the docket, you see that a bunch more medical records and expert opinions and things were filed more recently, uh, as recently as, I think, fall of 2012, uh, including, I believe, recollections or records from doctors in Tehran. Whatever was presented, the government did indeed concede. They, they didn't settle this case. They, they, they folded. <laughs> they admitted uh, that this was a table injury. In other words, that the encephalo there was an encephalopathy that it did appear within the requisite period following vaccination, uh, and therefore the child was uh, eligible for compensation under the program. Uh, as far as we know, there's no mention of a connection to the autism that the child has been diagnosed with. We know the child has been diagnosed with an ASD. So we don't know what concession, if any, the government made vis-a-vis MMR and autism. But we do know they conceded MMR and encephalopathy in this case. Now, we also know in the Bailey Banks case, there was MMR that produced encephalopathy, and that encephalopathy went on to uh, later become symptoms of autism, and like I said, the special master will, if not for the administration of the MMR, there wouldn't have been the brain damage. Without the brain damage, there wouldn't have been the autism. Um, but what I think is, again, interesting about this case is the government is paying for things like ABA therapy, which, of course, is a therapy for ASD and almost exclusively ASD, uh, this child has autism. He, he should be getting ABA therapy. But the fact that the vaccine injury program is paying for it raises some serious questions. Either the government is saying that this compensation is compensable, if you will, under the program because the need for ABA therapy was a result of the vaccine injury, or they're giving money away that doesn't belong to this child that is money that should be reserved for a true vaccine injury. Uh, people have made the argument that the encephalopathy has nothing to do with the ASD diagnosis, that the ASD would have occurred regardless. So 
why are we giving vaccine compensation money to a non-vaccine injury? Um, it's one or the other. Good points uh, in logic, yeah. So, I, you know, we, we don't know because we don't have all the documents. Yeah, Can there's good points in logic. I, this is a fascinating case for many, many reasons. Um, as David said, there, we, we, we now have a pattern of injury that we've seen uh, reported in thousands and thousands of children, thousands of children who have not been compensated under the program. And that pattern of injury involves exposure, a normally developing child exposed to a series of vaccines and then developing uh, fevers, seizures, um, prostration, and then regressing at some point thereafter into autism, a clear encephalopathic event leading to regression. The fascinating thing about this case is the second shot and the fact that the government conceded the case. I would love to know what is in those additional documents that they obtained. I suspect that the uh, evidence was so damning that they conceded the case in order that those documents could remain sealed, and I, I wonder what the legality of that is. I'd be fascinated to know. But this is a re-challenge case. This is a case where a child has had not one but two doses of the vaccine, and I suspect that that is going to show, the, do the documents show that something was triggered, the regression was triggered after the second dose, and that is why uh, these documents um, are not available um, as part of the court documents for us to scrutinize. And um, I think this is tacit admission that what happened to this child, including, specifically including the regression into autism, um, was as a consequence of the vaccines they were given and it's the toothpaste out of the tube. I mean, there's no going back on this. Law is based on precedent. And I think we're going to see a flood of these cases precisely because we see so many who give exactly the same history of one or two dose exposures, encephalopathy and regression. So um, I think it's a very, very important case. Those who argue that the encephalopathy has nothing to do with the autism or in fact that the autism was inevitable, I'm afraid of just talking utter nonsense. That is totally inconsistent with the clinical history of the children and it's wishful thinking on the part of those who would seek to deny that there is a link between immunization and autism. And in fact, this morning, uh, David uh, had emailed me an abstract on a study, Autism Following a History of Newborn Encephalopathy, More Than a Coincidence, and this study uh, says that compared with the controls, the children who had experienced newborn encephalopathy were 5.9 times more likely to have been diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder. And Dr. Wakefield, you bring up a good point about Ryan Mojave's case having a re-challenge aspect to it. David's article on the Huffington Post also talks about the effects to Ryan from the first um, set of vaccines, and uh, he documents that uh, his mom reported that he was having uncontrollable tremors, and there are more, and people can uh, look at David Kirby's article on the Huffington Post, Google Huffington Post and David Kirby. We're going to go ahead and just give a shout-out to our sponsor uh, of this program and skip the uh, break at the bottom of the hour, and that's Humpback Dairies of Miller, Missouri. They can be reached at 417-848-7570, and they provide delicious and nutritious camel's milk, which is a whole food. Before we keep going, Dr. Wakefield and David, can you give your website addresses in case people want to contact you? Uh, David, go first. 
I don't really have a website um, that, that pertains to this issue. It's, I, mean, I, I haven't accessed it in years. Um, but if I can just plug my own recent book, <laughs> the best way to reach me is uh, through my latest book, which is called Death at SeaWorld. So if you go to deathatseaworld.com, there's a link there, and you can email me that way. And if you're interested in killer whales and the natural environment, you might pick up a copy. <laughs> oh, okay. David, we have to contact you someplace in case somebody wants to knight you or something. They have to know how to reach you. And Dr. Wakefield? Well, there I have two. One is related to the book, and there one can go and order the book and buy it and, and read about the events in England um, around this. That is callous-disregard.com, callous-disregard.com. And the other one to go to where I'm currently uh, blogging and um involved in the protection of scientists and doctors acting in the public interest, that is the academicintegritifund.com, academicintegritifund.com. So please take a look at those. Okay, very good. Dr. Wakefield, listening to David talking, can you tell us what you think and what you feel about Ryan Mahabi's case? How do you feel about children still being injured by the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine? I think it's um, it's extremely sad. We're 18 years on. I, when I, I've been in this for 18 years now, and it's, there is no slowing of this. In fact, there is an intensification of the vaccine program um, and really very, very little acknowledgement of this problem. You would think that this was a major event. Was it covered in the U.S. media? Absolutely not. The only place that it got coverage was in the Daily Mail in the U.K. and, of course, on David's, uh, David's article on Huffington Post. Why was that not picked up? This is huge, and yet it really shows how the media has been crushed into um, into not dissenting from the government's position on any of these matters. And yet this is of major interest to the American public. 89% of American parents put vaccine safety research as their number one medical research priority, a study out of the University of Michigan. It is a, an issue of massive public interest and concern and yet it is not being aired in the public. It is not for the media to judge what the long-term consequences of their actions might be. The media have never done that. They don't care about that. The job of the media is to report the news, and yet this news has not been reported. And um, the, the attrition, the number of children born uh, who are now uh, being born who face uh, damage, inevitable damage, and if nothing is done, it is unacceptable. If you look at the CDC's figures, and you extrapolate from the data for eight-year-olds that were procured 10 or so years ago, then the risk for autism or an autistic spectrum disorder for a child born in the States today is approaching one in 25. That is an astonishing number, and that increase in the incidence shows no sign of abating whatsoever. Something has got to be done. The government have completely failed, and yet we have this massive legacy of human suffering that is going on. It has got to change. David, what kind of human suffering happened to the child in the second case? What was Emily Mahler's injury? Uh, again, rather similar uh, vaccine reaction, fever, going to the hospital, uh, and then eventual loss of speech and eye contact and an autism diagnosis. Um, again, uh, I've actually interviewed her mother, but I don't have access to the medical records um, and her child definitely has an ASD and is getting compensation 
for ABA therapy. Uh, what is different about this case is that the government settled it. Uh, they did not concede, and they specifically said we're not saying that the uh, vaccine caused her injuries or that they caused her autism, uh, but they did agree to pay out millions of dollars uh, over the lifetime of this child uh, for all kinds of services and to purchase an annuity to, to pay for it, I should say. <clears throat> and um, it's, uh, again, in line with uh, a lot of the other cases that we see, and I guess you know, we we just we, we we do see this trajectory of vaccine injury creates an encephalopathy, and the encephalopathy leads to symptoms of autism. And of course, if you have enough symptoms of autism, you have an ASD diagnosis. Um, and even taking it back one step further, you know, um, and as you know, I, I I wrote a lot about thimerosal, but I, I did mention. MMR as well, and there are studies, I believe, out there published that MMR doubles the risk for febrile seizures in children, and then when you add the varicella component to that and make it MMRV, that quadruples quadruples the risk um, of a uh, febrile seizure, and febrile seizures can increase the risk of encephalopathies. And according to that study you mentioned, encephalopathies can greatly increase the risk of an ASD diagnosis. Now, that study you mentioned, it was small. It was done out of Australia, and those were newborns. So we're not talking about kids 18 months old getting the MMR vaccine. But it does indicate that an encephalopathy early in life greatly increases the risk for an ASD. So when people say there's absolutely no possibility out of the question cannot happen, you cannot connect a single case of autism to immunizations. I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, but I'm a journalist and I'm trained to look at connections between things. And I see a proven connection between those vaccines and febrile seizure. I see a proven connection between febrile seizure and encephalopathy. And I see a apparently proven connection between encephalopathy and ASD. So to me, it's not outrageous. It's not out of the question. And it's certainly not anti-vaccine to pose the question or to report the fact that the government conceded encephalopathy in a vaccine case that led to autism. Um, so I think there's a lot of uh, myopia uh, uh, on people who want to defend vaccines 100% and will not budge an inch, and that includes people in the media who have made up their mind that there's no connection despite this, this evidence. But I do have to say there's myopia on the other side as well, and I think it's just as foolish to say there's no connection <laughs> to vaccines. It's just as foolish to say every case is directly related to vaccination. And I think that's where sometimes mistakes get made, because first of all, there are unvaccinated kids who have autism. There are unvaccinated kids who regressed into autism. And I think people on one side of the debate need to take that into account as seriously as people on the other side of the debate need to take into account these court cases. And I guess, you know, instead of it becoming all about vaccines, I really wish it was all about autism. And, and that was my point in the beginning because we do see studies about air pollution, both from coal-fired power plants and now 
freeway traffic. And, and we know that as engines become more high performance, the particulate matter gets smaller. So that is a problem that has actually increased in the period in question. We know that endocrine disruptors are being used more and more. Things like Roundup, which is now in the water supply in some places, is a serious endocrine disruptor. We know there's a connection to autism. I believe these studies of older fathers are very significant because their DNA may be more subject to mutations or de novo mutations that may create things like mitochondrial disorders. So I, I, I think we need to look at everything. I always have thought that. I think vaccines have played a role in certain cases, but I'm not convinced it's 100% of the story. And I just think that it is important to have balance at all times. And to the average parent to hear this, it's scary stuff. And my goal is certainly not to drive people away from vaccination. My goal is to find out what made these kids sick. And if vaccines were involved in some of those cases, I, I don't understand why there isn't a stampede to study these kids. What is it about them that caused them to have this vaccine reaction? And why did they get an encephalopathy but nobody else did? Is there a genetic similarity? We see the kids in Europe who are getting uh, narcolepsy. What is it about those kids? And, and, and then look at the larger environmental and, and, and genetic picture. And finally, I guess the reason I say this is because I just get so sick of being called anti-vaccine, and it's a way of just dismissing people who raise serious vaccine safety questions. And just as a point of record, I was attacked by a dog last week. I got puncture wounds. I went right to the ER, and I got a tetanus shot because I don't want to get tetanus. And I knew that vaccine would protect me from tetanus, and I'm fine. So I really think there needs to be balance. And I'm not saying that we've had an anti-vaccine discussion here on this interview, but I do get concerned when I see the discussion going off the track too far one way or the other. Well, you know, uh, admittedly, if uh, uh, other parents uh, hadn't been uh, pro-vaccine, their children uh, wouldn't have autism. So, um, you know, there's, it does marginalize people when you call them anti-vaccine. And uh, the question should be about health and why so many children are sick. And you've brought up, David, that, uh, you know, there are some unvaccinated children who have autism, certainly not comprising the whole autism epidemic statistics, but there are some children who've not been vaccinated who have autism. I interviewed a chiropractor. Chiropractors, a lot of them don't vaccinate their kids, maybe all, I don't know. But I interviewed a chiropractor whose child had autism. But, you know, the thing is, is that that child had a history of gastrointestinal problems. And so the gastrointestinal health early in life in that critical neurodevelopmental period is so important, important too, again, the neurodevelopment of that child. Um, and then, too, I asked people uh, who say they have a child who hasn't been vaccinated, who has autism, whether their sibling was vaccinated, for example, with the MMR vaccine, because then we look at the question of horizontal transmission of the measles virus. Dr. Wakefield, would you like to comment on that? Yes, this is a thorny subject, and I, I, I share David's concern. I, I personally, um, we know that all autism isn't caused by vaccines. We know that for sure, because historical cases of autism are caused by for example, herpes virus infections. But what they do provide us with is a biologically plausible mechanism 
for an encephalitis or an encephalopathy caused by those herpes viruses to lead to an autistic spectrum disorder. Therefore, it proves that this axis um, can operate. And in, in just to add to the notion that there is this um, sequence of events from exposure to an encephalopathy, uh, febrile seizures, um, excessive use of um, anti-inflammatories or antipyretics, uh, leading to a diagnosis of autism. The Chinese have published recently showing that um, autism, as that uh, febrile seizures are associated with a greater risk of autism. Therefore, adding to the notion that there is this plausible sequence of events that re results from an exposure leading to autism. Um, the issue of, and the other thing to say is that yes, there are, I believe autism is, um, causation is complex and there are a number of things playing into it. I think that what we need to focus on is what can we change, what can we alter in the environment to influence the, to stop this epidemic? That is really the key question. Can we change all of these things? No. Can we reduce exposures? Yes. Is there something that we can target, for example, immunization practices that allow us to dramatically alter the incidence of autism? So. That is, uh, I think, a key question that, uh, as well, David yes, needs. Why are people jumping at the opportunity further. to look at Because it is so accessible to, to change. And the irony, of course, is that um, neither David nor I are anti-vaccine. Uh, the principle of protecting children from serious infectious disease with safe immunizations is, um, is a very attractive notion. Is it operating in effect? Well, uh, I don't think so. But... Um, uh, the irony is that those who are not transparent with the public, who are not honest with the public because they are seeking to protect public confidence in their decision-making, and let's be quite clear, that's what they are seeking to protect, is public confidence in their decision-making, lest vaccine uptake go down and children suffer disease. Um, if you are not honest with them, then in the end, you will lose public confidence, you will attract vaccine uptake across the board, and then we will have a big problem. So... Um, in the end, I would suggest that it's those people who are, in effect, anti-vaccine. The issue of horizontal transmission, um, in this case, the transmission of a live viral vaccine agent from one person to another is well described in the literature and, in fact, is something that uh, I will be publishing on in the next few days uh, on Age of Autism and elsewhere. It's something that we've been studying for years, both in primate models and in the field, in, in, in populations. Uh, it's something that is very well recognized by the World Health Organization and measles virologists. It's known to occur for rubella and mumps vaccines. And um, it is a major problem with live viral vaccines such as polio. So might that account for some cases where there is no history of immunization, but a sibling has been recently immunized or has succumbed apparently to the effects of an immunization that's plausible. Um, does it happen? That remains to be seen. David, had you wanted to add something? Well, yes. I, I mean, to me, the ultimate goal, and, and that's why I said we have to study these kids who got sick, not necessarily with autism, but from a vaccine injury. What is it about their genetic makeup? What is it about their environment? What is it about prenatal exposures, age of the parents, uh, or, or you know, what else beyond the vaccine can we study? And is there a way then to somehow determine who is more susceptible? 
to certain vaccine injuries or is more sensitive to certain vaccine ingredients and devise a vaccine schedule for those children that maybe varies from the standard vaccine immunization schedule. I mean, we can test. We're getting much better at detecting mitochondrial disorders. Um, we know more and more about autoimmune diseases. Uh, we need to find out why those vaccines made those particular children develop those particular symptoms and figure out what the commonality is. It might be something we can remove. Maybe they were exposed to something that made them more susceptible uh, prenatally or neonatally, but it might be in their case that, that the vaccines, if not administered properly and carefully, such as in the Hannah Polling case, um, are going to spark some kind of uh, regression. Now, the trick there is that those kids might be equally susceptible to natural febrile infections, uh, and therefore, you know, they may need vaccinating more severely than anybody else. I don't have the answers, but I do think it's much better to operate from a point of knowledge than this sort of blindness. I think that, you know, it's kind of like dumb luck. Like, we don't really know if your kid will get injured, but we think it's very, very rare. And if it happens, we'll, we'll give you a couple million dollars. But isn't some of the science that the CDC based their... Uh, contention of safety upon, their assertion of safety upon, based on quote-unquote science from someone who's on America's most wanted list? Uh, well, if you're re referring to Dr. Paul Thorson, there, there's quite a bit of debate over how much influence he had over these thimerosal studies that were published out of Denmark, but my understanding is that he sort of ran the the shop, if you will, that was doing all these studies on behalf of the CDC, and of course he's been accused of embezzling millions of dollars in research funds uh, from that very program uh, via a university in Denmark. Um, I, I certainly want to see this man brought to justice, and I certainly want to see all the facts of this case come out, and I think it's fair to ask what influence did he have over the publications of these studies. I've certainly seen the emails back and forth. He was one of just two or three people uh, uh, in Denmark that was uh, communicating with people at CDC about publications of the studies, uh, the, the one in particular. Uh, and, and my understanding is that there are members of the House uh, Government Reform and Oversight Committee who uh, said they were going to try to get the unredacted copies of all of those emails back and forth. So I think it remains to be seen, but I think it's a perfectly legitimate question to ask, where is he, where's the money, and did he have any undue influence over the publication of that study? And Dr. Wakefield, we only have another moment for this question, but uh, I, I, there is a, a defamation lawsuit going against the British medical journal Brian Deere and Fiona Godley for a series of articles in which it's alleged that uh, you were engaged in some wrongdoing in reference to that Lancet study, but I heard something like the British Medical Journal never even checked its facts before it published horrid articles about you. Is that true? There's a fraud is the allegation, Terry. I know it's a tough one to say, but <laughs> fraud. And the allegations are entirely false. They're demonstrably false. And now uh, there's a litigation, a lawsuit in Texas, uh, where we hope to bring Brian Deere, as you say, Fiona Godley from the British Medical Journal and the journal itself here to answer in front of a, a Texas jury. That is the aim. And let the people make up their minds. 
Um, in the meantime, um, yes, the, the uh, uh, you know, it's been very unfortunate, it's been very tough. We, there have been a number of these attacks on doctors and scientists acting in the public interest rather than in the interests of the government or policy or profit, in fact. And, um, and we've set up a fund to protect just those people because you cannot find or will not find for the future scientists who are prepared to do this work. It's the end of their careers if they call into question vaccine safety. It's uh, You will not find experts to stand up for these children in vaccine court because likewise they will be attacked time and time again. There are just a handful of us left in the world looking at these very, very important issues. We will not roll over. We're not going to stop the work. And this fund is set up to help protect those people. So um, if people are interested, please go to the academicintegritifund.com and take a look because um, you, you know, you're, you're promised a lot of action. Did they check their facts? No. And I think you can glean this from the records which are now available at the court website in Texas or indeed on that, uh, on the Wakefield Justice Fund um, website. If you go to that, um, you will see the court documents and despite the fact that the BMJ alleged that they had checked the six million word document of the GNC, the General Medical Council transcript, uh, they had not done so. They went, they, in their terms, spot checked uh, what it turns out. Brian Deere, in fact, took them too. So one of, I'll just give you an example. I gave um, uh, at the time the longest ever testimony in the history of the General Medical Council after me, Professor Walker-Smith superseded me with the longest ever testimony in the history of the GMC, uh, and the BMJ's representative did not even know, the person who'd done the fact-checking, did not even know that I had, in fact, testified and was not certain whether Professor Walker-Smith had testified. There's the degree to which they had checked the, G the GMC transcript. So uh, this will all clearly emerge in a court of law. That is our wow. hope. Just Stunning. So again, that's academicintegritifund.com. And uh, if listeners would uh, go to amazon.com, they can find David Kirby's books, Evidence of Harm, Animal Factory, and now Death at SeaWorld, Dr. Wakefield's books, Callous Disregard, and Waging War Against the Autistic Child. Gentlemen, thank you for your continued good work and for talking with us here today. Terry, do I have uh, 15 seconds to say one more thing? Okay. Uh, when I first started researching this in 2003, it was utter heresy to say that autism had an environmental component. Most people didn't even believe that regression was real. To talk about things like toxic exposures, to even talk about pollution, was just out of the question. I mean, it was just unheard of. And now all of those things are pretty much in the consensus of mainstream science, that it's not purely genetic, that there is an environmental component, that things like pollution and toxins, even postnatally, probably do play a role. And that's huge. Well, gentlemen, thank you for sticking with it and helping affect these positive changes for kids. And next week, I'll be joined by Jeffrey John Ofterhide, founder of VacTruth.com, and Wendy Lydell, author of Raising a Vaccine-Free Child. Did you know about all of the children sickened, paralyzed, and rendered unconscious in Chad, Africa, in December 2012 after a meningitis vaccine? Locked in their tragedy, only to have it finally said by the government a month later that they had a psychological disorder? And did listeners know that in 1987, hundreds of children in New Zealand collapsed at school after they were injected with an experimental meningitis vaccine, and the government said that their collapsing was psychological. 
Too many of these children from Africa and New Zealand are still suffering with disabilities. Tune in next week for this serious discussion. And don't forget to register for the Autism One Conference, which is turning out to be even much more exciting than usual. Groundbreaking advocacy and new research. Please re- register at www.autismone.org. Thank you to this program sponsor, Humpback Dairies, providers of delicious, healthful camel's milk, which is a whole food that you can survive on. Humpback Dairies can be reached at 417-848-7570. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit AutismOne.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.